today's Bible reading is Psalms 87. He has founded his city in the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rehab at Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush, and will say, This one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the people, This one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, All my foundations are in you. Thanks, Henry. How would you pray that? Interesting kind of question, and uh, an important one as we continue our series in prayer and looking at the Psalms, what has been touted by many down through the centuries as the handbook on prayer in the Bible. But I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a closer look. Gracious Father, thank you for all of the Bible, including the Psalms. Please be with us now so that we might get a little bit more insight into them uh, to help us pray and pray well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in year 11 of high school, uh, I shifted from being, being at a Christian school, where I'd been forever, uh, to the local public school, Aurora High School in Coast Harbour, uh, where some students uh, often came to school stoned uh, and others shot people at sports carnivals. Uh, so a quality school. Anyway, uh, I didn't really fit in. Uh, I didn't fit in with the Hellmen, or what were called the Hellmen, as they called themselves, uh, the, the guys who partied all over every weekend. I didn't fit in with surfers because I was a bodyboard rider. Uh, and I didn't really fit in with the geeks. I wasn't smart enough. Uh, but I had a friend, Matt Prater. Hey, Matt, if you're watching. Uh, he could smooth it with every group. Everyone just seemed to like him. He could hold a conversation with anyone at any time and just seemed to win them over. And so, you know what I did? I watched him. I watched what he said. I watched what he did. His mannerisms, his catchphrases, his timing, his wit. And then I'd copy him. Not with the same people, uh, different people in different places. And it seemed to work. I found myself getting better at fitting in, at getting more comfortable and confident at talking with people. And the more I copied Matt and his tried and tested techniques, uh, the more confident I got to start putting my own spin on things. The more I came into my own. And I reckon the Psalms in the Bible are like Matt Prater in our conversation with God. But first, let's recap on where we've been over the last four weeks when it comes to prayer. Firstly, Jesus' prayers are the most important. He's not only, he not only died the death that we deserved, that we should have died, but he lived the righteous life that we should have lived. As such, he prayed the prayers that we should have prayed uh, in our place for our sake. Our prayers, then, they're only acceptable in Christ. Christ is the one true prayer. Secondly, we saw the proper form of prayer throughout the scriptures is asking God to keep his promises, which we know are all fulfilled in Christ. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us how to pray and what to ask for, and the riches of 
calling on God our Father in heaven to the praise of his holy name, asking that everyone and everything submit to Jesus as per God's will and that he give us our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive others and lead us into righteousness. And now we turn to the Psalms in the Bible to further enhance and to personalise our prayers because like with Matt Prater, the Psalms are good conversations that God's people in the past have had with God that we can listen in on and watch and get ideas from and then make into our own as we look to engage with God more in our own prayers. So to that end, as we come to praying the Psalms, firstly, we'll be looking to see how see them in the light of Christ and secondly, to appreciate them as those who are in the now and the not yet. So, firstly, praying the Psalms in Christ. The book of Psalms, if you don't know, is 150 individual pieces of writing in what Christians call the Old Testament, uh, what the Jews call the Tanakh. Uh, they were written about a thousand years before Jesus, uh, from a thousand years uh, towards Jesus. The, the writings include songs and prayers and poetry for all types of occasions in the life of God's people, the Israelites. Uh, it's part of scripture, of God's inspired word. And the Apostle Paul himself, an Israelite, uh, was pretty clear on what the point of Scripture is. He wrote about this to a young mate and church leader, a guy called Timothy. He says, From infancy, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul's first observation about what scripture is for, for Timothy and for any who read it, is to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Psalms, as scripture, are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said as much after he rose from the dead and suddenly appears before his uh, disciples. Uh, he's super keen for them to know his whole life and death and resurrection is to fulfil scripture. He said this to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So the Psalms are full of Jesus uh, in the sense that he's the fulfilment of them. The salvation from God and the life lived with God expressed in the Psalms, they find their fulfilment in Jesus. And so as we come to the Psalms to use them in our prayers, it's important to remember that firstly the Psalms are about Christ. They either point to him or speak to something of which he is the fulfilment. And seeing this will often mean that the Psalms will move us to praise and to thank God. Now this might be obvious in some Psalms, uh, but it's worth trying to apply it to every Psalm to ask how does this fulfill, how does Jesus fulfill this? Or how does this, what does this tell me about salvation through faith in Jesus? So, for instance, let's kick it off with this first, the first Psalm, right? Psalm 1. We read, I'm sorry if that's small and you can't read it, uh, but if you've got a Bible, it might be worth uh, flicking it open. Psalm 1 reads, Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. 
whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now where is Jesus, or salvation by faith in him, in this psalm? Well, we know that Jesus is the righteous one. We know that he is the only one who truly delighted in God's law. He obeyed it perfectly. As such, according to this psalm, he deserved to be blessed. That is, to be happy and flourishing and God always watching over him. But instead, he suffered and died the death of the wicked and the judgment of God on a cross. He was blown away like chaff, so to speak, on behalf of the wicked so that they wouldn't have to be. We are the wicked in this psalm. As such, we deserve God's judgment and destruction. To read this psalm in Christ, then, is to trust his righteous life was given for our unrighteous ones, to trust that he has saved us from being blown away like chaff under God's judgment. As such, as we pray this psalm, we use it in our prayers, it should prompt us to praise God for Jesus, the righteous one who saves us from being blown away in our wickedness. Now, that's not the only way this psalm or other psalms can be used in our prayers, but as we follow the pattern set down in the Lord's Prayer that we looked at the last couple of weeks, of the richness of calling on God our Father in Heaven to the praise of His holy name, we should be looking for Jesus in the Psalms. And as it is for Psalm 1, so it is for every Psalm. As those who are in Christ, we should expect to find that in all the Psalms, without exception, point us to the person and work of Jesus in some way and move us to praise and thank our Heavenly Father for it whether that be in his fulfilling the promises to Israel's greatest king, King David, or whether it be in his fulfilling the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Israelites' ancestors, or in reference to the Israelites' ancestors saved out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus, or in reference to the temple in Jerusalem. It's important to remember that Jesus fulfills the hopes in all of these. Jesus is the king in the line of David. Jesus is the temple, the place where people meet with God. Jesus is the true salvation from slavery. And as such, the Psalms provide us with a wonderful launching pad for praising God in Jesus. So for instance, many Psalms attributed to King David are David's hopes and struggles and requests expressed to God as the king of Israel who God promised would have an eternal dynasty that a descendant of David's would always sit on the throne. That's what God promised. Now, we know that that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. And as a descendant of David, and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus now reigns eternally as king in the line of David. And so it's good to keep this in mind as we read Psalms, particularly those attributed to David, or about the king of Israel. Like Psalm 21, for instance, which has the king of Israel saying things to God only King Jesus really fulfills. Like... Uh, he asked for life in verse 4 he asked you for life this is the king asked God for life and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever as the resurrected king only Jesus fulfills that prayer and in seeing this fulfilled in Jesus it's then a joy to reflect on the other things the king says in this psalms such as the opening words of this psalm psalm 21 the king 
rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. I don't know about you, but it's wonderful to think that Jesus rejoices in the victories the Father gave him over the forces of evil and sin and death and that what he requested of the Father to save all those who believe in him wasn't just a duty for him, it was his heart's desire. What a wonderful thought. What a wonderful thought that can be easily turned into a prayer of praise to our Heavenly Father's great strength and Jesus' deep affection for us. Uh, Whatever the psalm, as we come to pray them, let's firstly remember that as scripture they're able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ to the praise of our Heavenly Father's holy name. And so to that end, let's look for Jesus in them. Now, trying to find Jesus in every psalm to start with might feel like trying to find uh, Wally in a 150-page Where's Wally book. Uh, But what I've noticed is if you look at a Where's Wally book with others, particularly those who've already found Wally in the picture in the past, you tend to find Wally quicker. And the same is true uh, with finding Jesus in the Psalms. It's worth finding him with others who've perhaps found him before and can show you, whether that be in a good devotional or in a commentary that smart brothers and sisters in Christ have written to help us, uh, like these ones, My Rock, My Refuge by Tim Keller, uh, is a yearly devotional through the Psalms, very encouraging. And uh, there's a great commentary uh, by Jim Mays on the Psalms, if you want to delve a little bit deeper. Uh, another great way to find Jesus in the Psalms is to spend time with others here at church reading the Psalms together, perhaps in a growth group. Uh, <laughs> perhaps in a growth group, uh, perhaps uh, to look for Jesus in them and encourage each other to use them in our prayers. And the more you learn where to look, uh, the Psalms will become more like the coronavirus version of uh, Where's Wally and you'll see the person and work of Jesus instantly (laughs) or more easily in the Psalms and so have more and more reason to thank and praise our Heavenly Father. So let's, let's work at praying the Psalms in Christ. However, the Psalms... They are not just a gift uh, to show us more of uh, Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. They're a a gift to free us to speak honestly to our Heavenly Father as we live in the now and the not yet. Which is our second point, prayer. In the now and the not yet. The Psalms, they are uh, unique in the Bible in that they're not firstly words spoken by God to us, but they're words spoken to God by his people. Uh, and yet they are scripture, which means they are God-breathed, as Paul writes. Uh, the Psalms are God-breathed in the sense that they are from the Spirit. Uh, that means that the words of the psalmists say what they say to God are actually inspired by God. And, and as such, they're sanctified. They're especially set apart for those of us who are trusting in Christ with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Set apart to teach us, rebuke us, correct us and train us in our prayers which can be quite unsettling as we live in the now and not yet. Many years ago, uh, before a um, church service was starting here, I cheekily asked uh, an elderly Christian man what he was looking forward to in life. What what are you looking forward to, mate, uh, in life? And he said, he looked me dead in the eye, and he he said, "Uh, I'm looking forward to faith giving way to sight and hope giving way to knowledge. 
And that really struck me, stuck with me. In this life, we might have the gift of faith and hope in Jesus, but they tease us with a better life than what we've got here and now that's full of suffering and sin and death. And that tension is in the now as we wait for the not yet, a tension the psalmists knew very well. As Israelites, they knew they were God's people, that he kept his promises to their ancestors, that he'd saved them out of slavery in Egypt and he'd established them in the promised land with a king, King David, who was a king after God's own heart, and yet life was not perfect. They were hassled by neighbouring hostile nations. They suffered the wicked amongst them. They suffered dodgy, godless kings after David. Uh, They were even exiled out of the land. They were living in the now of being God's people, but not yet in the promised perfect peace that he had offered them. They're in the now and the not yet. A space that's often uncomfortable, disorientating and full of death. A space that we can all identify with. I should hope that we can all identify with. As the Apostle Paul writes, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Those who trust in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the harvest, the first delicious bite in the eternal apple, so to speak, that we will enjoy in full one day with the redemption of our bodies. The day Jesus returns and raises us from the dead and gives us everlasting bodies, bodies that will never suffer death or decay or sin, bodies to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth with God forever. That's our hope, but we're not there yet. And so we groan now while we wait. And that is a groan that the Holy Spirit has actually kicked off in us. It's because of him we groan. But he wants us to express that in and through the Psalms, with the language, the language and freedom there to be honest and hopeful in our experiences of living in the now and not yet. Perhaps even to push us beyond our own guarded experiences and feelings with God. So, for instance, many of the Psalms are full of complaining to God. I don't know if that's your natural go-to in prayer, to complain, but they, ex- but the Psalms are full of it. They express the pain, the grief, the dismay and the anger that life is not good. And they, are, and they often use exaggerated language to make that point to God. Like Psalm 6, I drench my couch with all my weeping. Psalm 56, my enemies trample on me all day long. It would seem that God is compelled to notice our plight as we evocatively express it. And not only God, but ourselves. Have you ever noticed sometimes that until you say how you're feeling out loud, you're not actually sure? And then you say it, and suddenly, oh yeah, that is how I'm feeling. Well, by taking on board the hyperboles, the exaggerated language in the the Psalms, in complaining to God about our lot, we make our grief real to ourselves, and with that we refuse to settle for things as they are now, that we want a better life, and expect that better life from God, a life that he promises in Christ. So prayers of complaint in the style of the Psalms, they're actually an act of hope. Can you see that? They're an expression of putting off the old humanity where life here and now is all there is so that the new might come. 
So for instance, we might read Psalm 6. Note it's from King David, fulfilled in Christ as he suffered to bring us the hope of eternal life. And then in that hope, complain to our Heavenly Father. In the words of that psalm, something maybe like this. Father God, my life feels like you're angry with me. Be merciful, I'm exhausted. I feel the agony of my anxious, deep soul down in my bones. Heal me. How long will you make me suffer? You can turn it around any time. Deliver me or take me home. Save me because of your unfailing love to me in Jesus. Is that something you feel like you could pray to God? Now, of course, there's more than complaining to God in the Psalms. It's praising, confessing, cursing and petitioning. Uh, which we're going to be looking at in a little bit more detail over the coming weeks. But it's important to note that in all of these, the Psalms use expressive language and a lot of metaphors. Metaphors are, are quite concrete words or phrases rooted in a, in a visible reality, like cold feet. Yeah, that's a metaphor that's been used to touch on all kinds of experiences, right? The groom got cold feet before he, his wedding. The customer got cold feet before they backed out of the sale. And it's no different for the metaphors in the Psalms. Indeed, they're an invitation for us to be creative with them in our prayers. One such metaphor that's used throughout the Psalms is the pit. It's an image to express that place or space where no one wants to be. It's the place where Joseph's hateful brothers put him, uh, where the spiteful Israelites put the prophet Jeremiah. The pit is used against enemies. It's to deny a person all that's needed for life. It's to cut them off from any contact. It reduces them to, a, to powerlessness. It's a symbol of death. Psalm 88 is a particularly powerful example of the use of this metaphor, the pit. As the psalmist cries out to God, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. And then talks of the grave and death and aching loneliness and darkness. But we're, we're not told what the actual problem is. Sickness, abandonment, guilt, imprisonment. Who knows what, what the actual problem is for the psalmist. The psalm says much but leaves everything open. And as such it's a, psalm, it, it's a prayer that we're free to fill our own particular experience of in the pit. Try it out with Psalm 88. Incredibly, though, the dark, discouraging, deathly image of the pit is also used in the Psalms as a mood for joy. A mood of joy, such as uh, in Psalm 30, verse 3, we read, You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Or Psalm 40, He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. As such, the metaphor of the pit can be used to bring our life to God in our anguish over whatever and in our thanksgiving and our praise as he saves them from it, saves us from it. Another metaphor the Psalms use is the wings of God. The way little birds are safe under the protective wing of, the, of, the, of their mother. And this is an image the Psalms use to talk about being safe with God. It's beautiful. 
like Psalm 17. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Or Psalm 36. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. These prayers, they assert that God has not only promised to be our refuge, but that he is right now, that we're safe under his wings, the wings of his unfailing love and blessings in Christ. However, we might be experiencing them now or want to, and that as such our prayer should reflect this in praise and in petition, in asking God for things, particularly when we might feel like we're in the pit. The Psalms, in their inspired use of metaphors and expressive language, they are God's gift to us, our conversational coach to help us be honest in our prayer, in our pain, and honest in our hopes as we talk to our Heavenly Father in Christ in the now and the not yet. And so to that end, I thought we could spend the next few minutes practicing praying a psalm. Psalm 63 is the psalm I've picked, remembering to look for the person and work of Jesus, to the praise of our Heavenly Father, and to use the language and the metaphors to express and expand upon our own experiences in the now and not yet. So why don't we just do that now? Let's pray.